Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my new podcast from The Recount with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. We are two weeks out from election day, by any definition, the home stretch, with more than 20 million early votes already cast, one debate left to go, and Donald Trump trailing Joe Biden in virtually every available national and battleground state poll. With Trump evidently in such deep trouble, we thought it would be a grand idea to sit down with two of the sharpest, savviest political strategists I have dealt with in my career, and two of the most savage and effective full-time tormentors of Trump, both of whom, it so happens, were until recently loyal and lifelong Republicans. The first is my pal, co-host with David Axelrod of the excellent podcast Hacks on Tap and Recount Advisory Board member from day one, Mike Murphy. The state of the Trump campaign is terminal. They're broke, busted, crazy candidates circling the drain. The second is another friend and the author of a searing and self-flagellating new book about his former party and his role in building it entitled, It Was All a Lie, the one and only Stuart Phineas Stevens. The state of the Republican Party is bleak because the Republican Party has become a white grievance party and they're running out of white people. To say that Mike Murphy and Stuart Stevens are among the most successful Republican strategists of their generation is akin to saying LeBron James and Steph Curry are among the most successful basketball players of theirs. Lay their client lists out side by side, and the only reasonable conclusion to draw is that Mike and Stuart, working separately but toward a common goal, were among the prime electoral architects of the modern GOP. I mean, take a look at these resumes. In Murphy's column, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bob Dole, John McCain, Jeb Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Christy Whitman, Lamar Alexander, etc., etc. In Stewart's column, George W. Bush, Chris Christie, Haley Barber, Bill Well, Dan Coates, Mary Phelan, Tom Ridge, etc., etc. Both of their lists of clients go on and on. One major client for whom Mike and Stewart both worked, and rarely in harmony, was Mitt Romney whom Murphy helped elect as governor of Massachusetts and for whom Stewart served as chief strategist in his failed 2012 presidential run. In truth, Mike and Stewart's rivalry when it came to Romney was just one particularly vivid example of the nature of their relationship over the course of the past three decades. Put plainly, these two guys, each at the top of their business, did not like each other much at all and were fierce and sharp-elbowed competitors. Even a few years ago, the idea of conducting a joint interview with Mike and Stewart would have been pure fantasy unless your objective was to witness fisticuffs, verbal or possibly otherwise. But in this respect, and only this respect, Donald Trump has proven to be a uniter and not a divider. His election and hostile takeover of the GOP turned Murphy and Stevens into allies as they became charter members of the Never Trump Republican vanguard. Murphy starting an organization called Republican Voters Against Trump, or RVAT, and Stevens joining up with the now-famous Lincoln Project. With Trump's opponents fluctuating wildly between unbridled optimism over the possibility of a Biden landslide and bone-deep paranoia that somehow Trump will stage a comeback or, more ominously, will figure out a way to steal the election, I can't think of two more relentlessly clear-eyed players in politics to help us all get a bead on where things really stand on the electoral battlefield right now than Mike and Stewart. But I also can't think of two people I'd like to hear from more on the past, present, and future of the Republican project. Does Murphy agree with Stewart that it was really all a lie? Is Stewart's mea culpa for being blind to the reality of what the GOP was turning into? Or is he sorry for being complicit in turning a once noble political institution into a race-baiting, reality-denying whorehouse? And what do both of them think the future holds for the party they helped build and are now, by some reckonings, in the process of burning to the ground? So, with that portentous preamble, I am pleased to welcome my old friends, Mike Murphy and Stuart Stevens, to this edition of Hell and High Water. Guys, uh, great to have you here. This is as good a place to start as any, I guess. Y'all are definitely never Trumpers, but do either of you still actually consider yourself a Republican anymore at all? I'm like the Japanese soldier up in the hills. It's 1955, and I'm, I'm fighting on, but... You know, I'm I'm still officially a Republican, but hanging on by a thread. Stuart? Uh, no, I surrendered. Um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't uh, consider myself a Republican now. Okay, that's good, given the book you wrote, which we're going to talk about some tonight. It is great to see both of you guys. Um, I missed you, Stuart, in Park City last week when I was out there talking to the Lincoln guys. Mike, I haven't seen you in forever, but it's good to have you both here. We're going to delve into three big buckets. We're going to talk about the state of the race the history of the Republican Party and the future of the Republican Party. 
had Carvel on last week and and he was enunciating something that you know you've been hearing from both sides post Trump getting COVID period, the word landslide, which is not just a word that people don't say very often for superstitious reasons, but also because of the structure of our politics now, the notion that landslides are impossible because of how polarized we are and how few movable voters there are, et cetera. That became kind of a article of faith that we couldn't have a big landslide. And then you started to hear people muttering very, very kind of um, circumspect way because people didn't want to go out on that limb. They all have PTSD from 2016. They don't want to be wrong at all, let alone be wrong in some foolish way where they're talking about a landslide and then Trump somehow ekes out a victory. But you do hear the word landslide on the Democrat and Republican side muttered more in the last week or so than you've heard it. I Maybe you've ever heard it in my career. Mike, do you think that that's a real thing? I'm going to ask you just whether you think it's a real thing, and then I'm going to give you a couple of the, of the contravening pieces of data, and we can grapple with that. You know, I'm afraid of the term because I don't know what it means in a divided country where things are close. I would say it'll be a crushing victory, which means Trump will lose every state where he impressed last time. And I think if the election were held tomorrow, I wouldn't bet my life, but I'd bet a little bit of money that Biden will win both Florida and Ohio which will bring a lot of clarity on election night because they both count their ABs in real time. So, you know, we're no by two in the morning, uh, 95% of the vote, it is likely. Uh, and so from a political power point of view, that is a crushing defeat. And I guess you call it a landslide, but historically, you know, a 10 point win. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I think he's going to get beaten into pulp. So Obama beat McCain 53-46 and had 360 some electoral votes. I don't think people really called that a landslide. Um, even though it was obviously a decisive victory, but it wasn't like a 400 electoral vote landslide. It wasn't Reagan in 84, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, Stuart, it sounds like to me like you think that's possible. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I think it's going to be a lot closer to 1964 than 2000. I think that uh, Trump is collapsing. And, you know, there's certain candidates in politics that are sort of like walking around with a paper bag full of water. It doesn't leak, but once it goes, good luck trying to get it back in the bag. Um, he doesn't have a message. That, that's the problem. So he, he's sort of like that American abroad who doesn't speak the language, so he just speaks louder. There's a clear path for him to win. What he needs to do is he has to basically ask for a second chance. And Americans are incredibly forgiving. And they'll give you a second chance, but you have to have some process of sort of a mea culpa. I can do better. I didn't understand. You can't stay at the bar and say, you know, I'm going to quit drinking while you're ordering another round. You've got to at least pretend to go to Betty Ford. And he's incapable of that. Yeah, right. I mean, he's like asking a defensive lineman to go like run a hundred yard pattern. You know, he just can't do it. <laughs> yeah. So they're stuck and they're broke and they don't really have uh, much of a political machine. So I think Biden's running a better campaign with a better message. But look, I mean, we, we get a lot of times I think hung up in the, the sort of weirdness of Trump. Yeah. But if I just woke up in the middle of the night and I said, look, there's a, a candidate. He's running for re-election president of the United States. More people have died from a disease in the last six months than any time before since the last hundred years. It's probably the worst economy since the Depression, arguably worse. You can't leave the country. You can't drive to Canada. The only country in Western Europe you can go to is Serbia. How do you think the incumbent's doing? I mean, none of us would say, man, that guy's got it in the bag. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a winning winning formula. (laughs) So Trump should be losing. Right. There's nothing weird about it. Right. Uh, right. There's 20% right track in the country. He's the incumbent. Yeah. So we look around at at this, this week. The numbers of early vote are just staggering, right? People are stunned. We, we're recording this podcast on Friday night and, and will appear on a Tuesday. At the end of this week, this Friday, almost 23 million votes have been cast, and it's still more than two weeks till election day. 23 million votes. I mean, if you compare that to the number in 2016 at this point, it's like orders of magnitude more. And to the extent that we measure the party breakdown, Democrats are swamping Republicans. That's not surprising. We knew that, Mike, that Democrats were way more inclined to vote early than Republicans who are going to save their vote to election day. We've heard that and we've seen that in polling for months now. But against that, there is the Tom Edsel piece this week. Tom Edsel, a very smart, liberal, statistically minded and demographically minded, very serious analyst and writer reporter at the New York Times, who wrote this piece that gave a lot of Democrats a little bit of a of a mice, just as they were muttering about landslide, all of a sudden you start to look at these voter at these registration numbers, which 
Edsel highlighted in this piece. He's got a Democratic strategist who closely follows data on a day-to-day basis, writing in a privately circulated newsletter. Since last week, the share of white non-college over 30 registrations in the battleground states has increased by 10 points compared to September of 2016, and the Democratic margin dropped 10 points to just six points. And there are serious signs of political engagement by white non-college voters who had not cast ballots in previous elections. You've got, you know, Dave Wasserman of the Cook Political Report talking about this phenomenon. You have the numbers in Florida, Mike, where the last time that a Democrat won back in 2012 when Barack Obama won, I want to see if I can find this number here for you. The last time when Obama won in Florida in 2012, you had a Democratic registration advantage of 535,000. Last time when Trump won, you had a Democratic registration advantage of 327,000. The current advantage for Democrats in the state is 134,000 in Florida. Now, you know Florida pretty well. Mm -hmm. There are Democrats freaking out about these numbers now, even as some of them are muttering about landslides. So what do you make of all that? Yeah, you know, these numbers are, I wish I knew who the secret strategist was because I'd like to bet them their house. Um, (laughs) the, The problem with these numbers is there's a little cherry picking going on. Florida's also gotten 2% less Caucasian since Trump's last election. So unless there's a real miracle in Miami-Dade, Broward, and Orange County, which are different flavors of the Hispanic vote, the big tidal wave is better than some incremental things. And remember, Trump's going to lose the independent vote by 20 points or more, and Biden's going to crush among Democrats, and Trump's going to have a Republican problem. He's going to get in the 80s, not the 90s. Normal's about 92 to 93. And he might be under 90, excuse me, 87 in Florida. So, you know, you can do some apples to apples thing about this point in time on registration increases. But Florida is a state that's going to cast probably over 10 million votes. And they're doing the old thing you have to do, which is, well, we're losing the electorate we've got. So let's change the electorate. Really hard to do. You know, it's one thing to do it in an off-year city council race where nobody votes, but in a presidential that's already full of intensity, with which is going to have a huge organic turnout, unless COVID gets in the way. And that's the thing about all this absentee and early voting. So a lot of it is motivated by COVID headwinds, and that's changing behavior. So historical patterns are all kind of askew by that. But fundamentally, people want to vote. There's huge intensity out there. They're going to vote absentee and early. We already know that. We see it. And I don't think a small tick up in registration success is going to be able to push back the two huge, you know, typhoon forces. One is demography. Stewart made the point earlier. The electorate is naturally proceeding anti-Republican at about a third of a point a year. And two is the fact that the largest organizing force of American politics right now is fire Donald Trump. And it's not a new thing. It's been growing since about a week after he got nominated, excuse me, after he got elected and inaugurated. You just take a look at the the one mark to market moment in politics where the bullshit goes away. Election day party's gotten clobbered in just about every special election. You know, (laughs) sometimes we win a safe Republican seat. We normally win by 18. So woohoo, we win it by 10. It's not a success. So I don't know. I'm I'm not as shaken up by some of these early registration numbers. I think the macro factors are much more powerful. Stuart, I, I, you were working at the Lincoln Project. And Mike, you're working at Republican Voters Against Trump. I asked you before whether you still consider yourself Republicans. The one thing I think you could agree on, you're both never Trump Republicans. Mm-hmm. A ton of people who worked elected Republican presidents over the, over the my career in politics are now in the in the never Trump category, not just in the never Trump category, but actively out there, you know, spending a ton of money or making a lot of ads. Do you think that given the scale that you imagine that Biden wins by that you just projected more like 64, I'm going to keep reminding you that that's was a pretty mm. big victory for Lyndon Johnson at 64. Is Does any of the shit you guys are doing matter? If you think it's a blowout of that kind, are you guys moving the needle at all? Or are you just kind of, you know, like distracting Trump and annoying him a little bit? But who really gives a shit? Well, I'd rather look back on this and say that the Lincoln Project wasn't necessary yeah. <laughs> because that means that, you know, Trump lost by 10 points. I think none of this is inevitable. I think that uh, the numbers that Mike was speaking of with Republicans, I think it's very important to give Republicans permission not to vote for Donald Trump. And I think Republicans against Trump that, that Mike's working with have done a fantastic job with that. In the Lincoln Project, we call it the Bannon line which is, uh, you know, to get three or 4% of Republicans not to vote for Trump. I think that these things are uh, very important. 
We're asking Republicans to do something that runs against their tribal instincts. So I think that you need to surround them with positive reinforcement and constant reasons why this is the right decision. I think the greatest danger for Biden now is that those who are for Biden now on this day will slowly drift back to Trump because of these sort of gravitational pulls of of tribalism, particularly over 65 voters. So I think that everything we can do between now and the election to put sort of a speed bump between uh, changing lanes, Biden doesn't need any more votes than he has now. Um, And he's a whole of the votes that he has. And it'd be great if he could increase it. And, you know, politics isn't static, usually going up or down. So I think all of this um, is, is really important. But look, I think most people involved in Mike's project and in the Lincoln project, we're not involved in it because of odds. We're involved in it because Trump is, is a disaster for the country. And you, you're going to fight that fight whether or not you're going to win by 10 points or lose by 10 points. It's ultimately about who you are and who the right. country is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is the old thing of when in doubt, do something. And this is the thing we do. You know, we're yeah. all we're all, I think, aligned to the knowledge that the old advertising joke that half of your advertising is waste, but the hard thing is knowing which half. So, uh, you know, at Arvat, we've had a kind of a two-headed plan. One is this, what we call, and Stuart mentioned, the permission campaign. We've done about 900 of these videos, real Republicans, and the best ones we push out in digital. And we're one of the biggest digital spenders now in Michigan, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. I got an email today from one of our internal people saying, this can't be true. How are we you know, spending more than ACORN or, so, or acronym or whatever the Democratic digital thing is? So we're doing a lot of that. And then we have this little $10 million thing in Florida, which is basically taking about a million voters who are soft suburban Republicans and independents with a bit of a skew toward women and parking about nine to $10 on each one in voter contact. Just sitting on them all the way. Cause Florida, you know, the last two elections there have been under 115,000 vote margins for president. Right. So, right. you know, are, can we claim causation? No, but we are, we are definitely pounding those people with message. that's very poll driven and hopefully it's having an impact. We feel like we are, but you know, we're going to find out election day. And then you got Mike Bloomberg who gave us some money, but also <laughs> is doing a lot to independence back USA. You got the, you know, the Biden campaign. There are a lot of resources sloshing around. So causation is tricky, but you know, I, and with the Lincoln guys, I've been hoping one of those Twitter spots, you know, Trump literally, you know, chokes on meatloaf and, you know, has a, I'm not going to wish the president physical ill, but, you know, he's a maniac and he responds to this stuff. So I think they've gotten deep inside his head, which is great because it does affect his behavior. One of the great wins for the forces of freedom and democracy of Trump is there has never been the emergence of a sane Trump who could use the tools of the presidency. And Stewart alluded to this earlier to get elected. So right. every day he's screaming and raving about what Republicans who don't like him in either group are doing. It's a great day. Yeah. I mean, you know, being head of the Trump campaign, sort of like being the third person in Al Qaeda. <laughs> um, it's, it's like not a place you want to be. Um, I mean, the last three campaign managers have been arrested. Yeah. So that dysfunction and disruption inside any large organization um, makes execution of any plan very difficult. Right. Um, as does a, a virus raging through the through the head office. Yeah, I mean, it turned the hot, <laughs> they turned the White House into a hot zone. Yeah, um, yeah. And you know, every day that he attacks like Arvad or attacks the, the Lincoln Project, that's a good day for the Biden campaign. Sure, right. sure. So here's my here's the, the last thing I want to ask you before we take a break. And I'm a great fan of the political philosopher Yogi Berra, who said, you know, prediction is always difficult, especially about the future. But we do have two weeks, and. You know, this would be the time for October surprises, but we've already had our October surprise. The president got COVID. We've, you know, the whole fucking year has been a surprise after yeah, a we've surprise. Had black swan. It's a flock of black swans <laughs> that have been like, you know, have been like prancing across the national lawn for the last, you know, 10 months, basically. Right. But we do have a debate, one remaining debate. You know, usually you guys know you get the first debate, huge audience shows up. The one person usually wins that debate. And then the second debate, there's the drama of can the one who lost kind of come back in the second debate. And it's the town hall debate. And we get a lot of intensity around that. By the time you get to the third debate, normally people are like, okay, we've heard everything these guys have to say. And it's kind of an afterthought. This one's not going to be like that, I don't think, because it's only two this time. And Trump is desperate and he knows he needs to change the game in some kind of meaningful way. So you got that debate. We have, you know, 
The FDA has their meeting on Thursday about the vaccine. Trump's been waiting for that day for a long time. It doesn't seem like they're going to have a vaccine before Election Day now, but that's a thing. The vaccine politics are out there. Barack Obama is going to campaign this week uh, for the first time really out in the field for Joe Biden. You know, you've got some little yardage left to play here. So as you guys look at these next two weeks without like trying to just dream up some crazy shit, like, is there something you could anticipate that could change the dynamic in this race? Trump needs it. Right. That's what he needs. He needs something to change the the dynamic of what has been a very stable race for the last seven, eight months. He needs something. What is that? What are you looking out for as like, here's the thing that could plausibly happen that could give Trump the break he needs? The thing that I wake up and uh, go to bed worrying about is uh, Joe Biden getting sick. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that they've been very smart about this. Yes. Um, I think I think the Biden campaign has run a fantastic campaign. Uh, I have tremendous respect for them. to be a front runner and stumble as they did and to not succumb to the pressure to change the candidacy in some wacky way, which never works. But right. you still feel like you yeah. got to do it because it's 40 to nothing in the Super Bowl. You're in the third quarter. You're going to stick with your game plan. Well, damn, if they did, then they won. Um they have a lot of discipline over there. Um, so I think you need external forces to interact. And I think the most grievous external force would be um, him being sick. But I think they're being very careful. And, and, and you know, God willing, that's not going to happen. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, there's a new campaign manager today. They're saying Katie Wall sort of is going to come over. This is like a bad time to be changing campaign managers. You know, I mean, it's like two weeks out. I, I you know, my, I, you know, they're going to be putting ads in Craigslist before this thing's over. Like, would you like to run a campaign? Um, come to the White House. So um, <laughs> it, this thing is is uh, there's big forces at work here: the economy, uh, virus, there's spikes in virus. Schools are closing. Um, Look, I'll tell you a perfect little metaphor for this. Donald Trump said he was going to drain the swamp. Well, yeah. the swamp is what they call the University of Florida football stadium. Right. And they're not going to play uh, tomorrow uh, because he did drain the swamp because they have COVID. And that's going to be an empty stadium. And that's you want stuff to get really real in Florida and Georgia and Louisiana. It's when they start affecting college football. So this thing is getting real and it's going to affect people's lives in ways that is very tangible to them. And ultimately, that's Donald Trump's fault. I'll give you one crank scenario. I wrote about this a month ago for the Post. And, you know, it was my black swan prediction, which is there's a beyond Trump who's not credible, but there's a bunch of leaked information out of the FDA that the virus is incredibly effective. Excuse me, the vaccine vaccine. And then it, it start, people relax a little and they have kind of an irrational tulip bubble thing about there's a magic vaccine. We're cured. Stock yeah. market explodes, this huge euphoria. And then it's all about the economy, which is still the one comparative thing and all the data that Trump has built in, in some cases, like a you know small double digit lead on. So if the race were to land on that, Trump would make some traction. I think it's unlikely because I think it's too late. But that to me was always the formula for a comeback. All right, we're going to take a break uh, right now and pay some bills. And uh, we're going to go back and talk about how your guys' party got so completely fucked up uh, in a second. And we are back uh, with my friends, Mike Murphy and Stuart Stevens. You guys, um, I do want to delve into how it, this happened to your party, <laughs> a party that you both love so much. And Stuart, it's a good way to start is to start with you because you have a book, um, which we want to promote because it's very good. One of the things I will say about you, unlike many ad makers I have met, is you are also a fine, fine writer. The book is called It Was All a Lie. And you say, I have no one to blame but myself. I believed. The book is a big mea culpa, right? And it's a, an analysis of how the party what what went wrong, how Trump took it over, ostensibly, although I might quibble a little bit with that language that I just used myself, but how you got here and your role in it. The question that occurred to me, even after having read the book, are you are you sorry for being naive? Is that what you're blaming yourself for? Or are you sorry for your complicity in having built this thing? There's people that spend their lives and they say they never look back with regret. And then there's people like me. Um, I, I, I deal, I deal a lot, I deal a lot in regret. Um, sure. I, I'm, I'm regretful. Um, I wish that uh, I had been less naive about that dark side of the party. 
I mean, I think those of us who were involved in Governor Bush's campaign in 99, when we were asking sort of what is a new conservative and we got compassion and conservatism out of that, I think that we assumed for the most part that we were on the right side of history, that we were inevitable, that we were the dominant gene, if only because the country was changing so much and the Republican Party had to change because parties usually do what's in their best interest. Um, I don't know any conclusion to come to, but that we were wrong, or certainly I was wrong. Uh, we were the recessive gene. Um, and the real root and beating heart of the party that was more sustainable is this uh, race-driven white grievance that the Republican Party's become. It's a white grievance party now. Um, and we really haven't seen that in American politics before. There's always been a hate element in American politics. I mean, America first. I mean, why didn't the country become fascist in the 30s? Well, probably because Roosevelt was president, not Lindbergh. So why is the Republican Party embraced this white grievance? Because the leader of the party has said that it's okay. So it's not like it made people racist, but it made it okay to say to be more racist. Um, and we're the victim party now. So that's we were wrong. I mean, you go back and you read George Bush's acceptance speech in 2000. Um, it reads like something from a lost civilization. Right. It's about humility and service and compassion. Um, that guy couldn't, that message couldn't win 10% in the Republican primary now. But Mike, part of what Stewart says in this book, and, I, and he's been saying, you know, in a, in a lot of appearances, in a lot of places, doing the, a, a lot, wearing a lot of hair shirt and sort of saying, you know, it was all a lie is the Republican Party, it's not that, that Donald Trump took a party that was noble and turned it into this, this whorehouse that it is now, this degraded, debased whorehouse. There was a, a lot about the party that was the seeds of its own intellectual, moral, spiritual bankruptcy were kind of there for a long time. And that a lot of things that it pretended to believe in, it didn't really believe in that much. And a lot of the reasons why people were attracted to it were not the reasons that were the ones that were embodied by things like those noble speech, the noble speech that, that Stuart just mentioned and, and things that were in the party platform, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, and the reason I, I raise it, say it that way is I just ask you, like, if you think about what's happened to your party, do you think it was all a lie? You know, I'm not sure I do. And, and to be fair to Stuart, I own his book, but I haven't read it yet. And I'm not sure. I'm struggling with all this myself as I try to figure out where I land in it um, in terms of how I, I view the world. I, I believe our culture is full of darkness in many places, like most cultures full of people. I do believe we're exceptional uh, as a country, but I believe we have been in cultural decline for a while. And I know those forces of ugly populism have existed in the in the party. And for a long time, we would beat them down and keep them bottled up unless we needed them in a Senate race in the South or somewhere. But they, there was there tended to be kind of a point of view in the leadership of the party. We can give them something better. It's politically smarter to give them something better. And we condemn that stuff. And then Trump go, comes along and says, I'm going to turn it all loose. And it, it works beyond his greatest dream uh, to become a middle class, very kind of tribal white grievance message. And, and it worked for Trump. Now, it worked narrowly. You know, he won the national election on kind of a hat trick in the Electoral College quite narrowly. But it sure crushed the Republican establishment, the primaries. I mean, I was there selling right to rise, no takers, um, the old reform conservatism. So the question for me is, is it static or dynamic? Does it evolve? You know, look where the Republican Party was on domestic policy and in the Nixon era. You know, Nixon was was kind of a domestic policy liberal. And then, you know, it, so it evolves. And I, I, my view is the, the question ought to be litigated. And the next place to litigate it that's really going to count is the post-Trump era. Are we locked into populist right. stupidity and we're going to have a junior Trump or a cheap imitator out of the Senate as the nominee? Or right. is reform conservatism going to have a chance to make a stand? And uh my Democrat friends all say I'm crazy. It's definitely the Trump populism is locked forever. But some of these same primary voters who swear by Trump, you know, before that voted for a lot of other regular Republican politicians. So I, I'm not right. sure the concrete is dry. The wet cement is dry on this spiral. But we're going to litigate. And we're going to know a lot in a couple of years. So I'm I may wind up where Stewart is. But right now, I, I want to have that big civil war first. So I want to get to that a little later, but for now, I want to go back to Stewart's argument. You know, when Trump first came along in 2016, I thought and said publicly and got criticized for it all the time that there was a reasonable chance that Trump could win the Republican nomination. Uh, I never thought he'd win the, the general election. Uh, I was like everybody else wrong about that. But I did think there was a market for what he was selling in the Republican Party. 
that kind of racist, nativist, xenophobic brand of populist cocktail. And so I wasn't really shocked when he won the primary. And, you know, he won it big, right? From the moment he got into the race to the moment he won the nomination, he was the front runner, like pillar to post. So it sort of suggests that he was what the party wanted, you know, and that over the course of our lifetimes, the Republican Party has become, you know, a consumer of populist, nativist, white grievance, you know, all that xenophobic cocktail that he offered. They wanted it. That's what they wanted to order at the bar. Stuart, you said, you know, race and racism is the original sin of the modern Republican Party. So, you know, Stuart, as you and I embrace this theory here, I want you to talk about it a little more because it's got to be hard for you to grapple with. You know, you're from Mississippi. You saw racism up close and personal as a kid. And you're basically saying now that you were complicit in turning the Republican Party into a party where racism, race baiting, nativism (laughs) are at the core of the party. Not just that you missed how the forces of darkness were growing, but that you kind of contributed to their growth. So, you know, a lot of people saw this shit happening and you should have seen it. So how did you miss it? Look, I didn't see it because I didn't want to see it. Um, It's pretty clear. You know, with this book, there's a trope of books, people writing in Washington about Washington. If only they had listened to me. Um, (laughs) I couldn't write that book because they did listen to me. Right. (laughs) Um, And and if one of the things that drew me to the Republican Party initially was the concept of personal responsibility, I, I don't know how else to try to return to that except by accepting personal responsibility. Um. And I think that uh, I didn't see it because it was uh, unpleasant for me to see. And look, I worked for guys who were running against those dark side, right? Um, I mean, it's amazing that the party nominated Mitt Romney and then nominated Donald Trump. Yes. And I I think it speaks actually to Mitt Romney's political ability, which is underrated. But look, it is all about race. It's just statistically all about race. 1956, Eisenhower gets almost 40% of the black vote. It drops to 7% with Goldwater, and it never comes back. I mean, Trump got about 7.5%. At this rate, we'll be doing great with blacks, about 40, 50. Um, and I think that that's uh, something that, that the party used to admit as a failure and used to try to address. And I think that's important. I think it was important that Ken Melman went to the NAACP and apologized for the Southern strategy. Um, now we don't even try. We've just embraced it. Um, the, the reason the party's not going to change is because the party doesn't want to change. The party's very happy. And the people that we would have counted on to fight just surrendered. The Nikki Haley's of the world, you know. I mean, and Ben Sass, like what's happening with Ben Sass kind of breaks my heart. I, I challenge anybody to disprove this, that if these Republicans had been in power in 1776, we wouldn't still be celebrating the Queen's birthday. I mean, you can know what they'd say. What are we going to do? Fight the king? Are you crazy? The most powerful army in the world? I mean, we'll work this out. Um, right. And then there's that whole trope of like, if I hadn't been there, you, you don't know how bad it would have been. So I, I'm going to start going out and saying, you know, I stopped an alien invasion last week. And the proof is we didn't get invaded, did we? Yeah. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, I'm a hero. So um, there's no force inside the Republican Party that is going to drive it to change except crushing defeat and fear. Which we could be on track My, for. See, that's the, the yeah. thin thread of hope uh, I'm hanging to in the short term. Because the problem is that all these Vichy Republicans, and I agree about the cowardice, you know, it's not like we were asking them to land on Anzio Beach. We were just asking them to be Republicans per what we had been. Um, right. So, you know, the coward is going to be back. It's going to be like Germany after the war. All of a sudden, the head of the West Berlin police You remember him from the rally, you know, different uniforms, same guy. And a lot of the same gutless dregs in the party who've been part of this looking the other way. But, of course, secretly, they've been with us all along are going to be back. And that is one of the biggest problems. And that that I think is linked to Trump. Part of what Trump ran against was the Republican Washington arrogant apparat. And the apparatus are very good. They're kind of a virus of their own at morphing and accepting whoever's in charge. So a bunch of them became yeah. servants of Trump, and now they're going to try to morph again. And uh, so there's, that's so, the hard part yeah. of Trumpism to get rid of. 
Stuart just mentioned Romney, and I, I think it's worth just dwelling on him for a second because both of you guys worked for Mitt Romney at different times. Um, Mike, you on his gubernatorial campaigns, Stuart, you on his presidential campaign, and and and, and some Mike won, we lost. Yes, Mike, Mike won. <laughs> Mike won, and Stuart did not. Um, I had the easier campaign. That is true. Also, although you know, you could argue that electing a Republican in Massachusetts was a never was not, easy, not not never an easy, easy thing to do. Stuart, you get pounded by a former momentary colleague of yours. Uh, in the National Review, Matt Scully, who takes you to task for Romney's loss in 2012. He says, without Romney's defeat, no Trump takeover. And no Republican other than Utah's freshman senator himself had more to do with the fateful outcome on that election day than Mitt Romney's sole campaign strategist in 2012, principal advertising consultant and convention speechwriter Stuart Stevens. And he then just flays you for, in his view, having fucked that campaign over or fucked it up, I should say. And I, I, I want both you guys just to address, you know, I mean, Romney was it's, it's amazing, as amazing as Donald Trump getting elected president of the United States after eight years of Barack Obama. It's equally amazing that Donald Trump becomes the nominee of the party after Mitt Romney was his previous standard bearer. I want you guys both, Stuart, I want you to f- address the question of whether you think in some way one of the things you should be apologizing for is having badly run the Romney campaign. Is that a fair shot at you because you're in apology sure. mode? Uh, and then, and Mike, then I want you to talk a little bit about Romney, whether you think Romney could Romney have won in 2012? And had he won, would the party be in a different place than it is today? Yeah, look, uh, I've always said blame me about Romney. Um, Matt Scully's a complicated guy. He has a history of writing negative pieces about people he's worked with, including Michael Gerson, who is as close to being a saint and walks amongst us, um, former spe- colleague of his in a speech writing shop. For George W. Bush. But, yeah. For George W. Bush, who now writes for the Washington Post and has kept the faith. But sure, of course. I mean, I, I I come from the school that when the candidate wins, it's, you give credit to the candidate. When you lose, blame me. Blame the consultant. So I think that's perfectly fair. I, I, I've said that myself many times. What we've learned here, uh, again, is what we learned, we're taught in civics classes that leadership matters. I mean, I think had Romney been uh, president, he would have led the same party in a different direction. Um. I think that in retrospect, probably that vision of the party that we were drawn to died on 9-11. Because George Bush, if you go back, was his first act of No Child Left Behind, which he signed with Ted Kennedy over his shoulder. I mean, today that would be submitted like to a war crimes tribunal in the Republican Party. So, I mean, I think about this every day. We could be at the end of the second term of Mitt Romney and the country would be a lot better off forgetting anything about the Republican Party, which is the magnitude less consequential then the lives that would have been affected, a whole lot more people would be alive today. So, yeah, sure. I think that's fair. You know, the, the thing, though, about once you're a political consultant operating in national politics with some authority, it's kind of like being a Big Ten football coach. Everybody votes so everybody thinks they can do your job better than you can. And the truth is, yeah, you know, sometimes you screw up, sometimes you do well. I mean, I'm the idiot who screwed up the whole Jeb Bush campaign that could never have been stopped and was obviously going to walk yeah. to the White House. I didn't even work for the campaign. I was a super PAC. But it's just kind of the nature of that. I, I think Romney could have won, but it was really hard. Um, and if he had won, I agree with Stewart. It would be a lot different. Uh, you know, same for Jeb. If Jeb were president, it would be tremendously different. He would have led the sure. Stewart's phrase, the same party in a different direction. I do think it's hard to be a conservative and criticize the left because we're running a clown show, you know, in, in a racist president. So it's really hard for me to yeah. get on my soapbox. But this obsession with identity on the Democratic side, which is we are a nation of groups. So you pick which group you belong to, and then you judge yourself versus other groups, and you rank your hierarchy of grievance about which group is exploiting you. That sends a message to white voters that, hey, we need to get a group because, you know, we're an enemy here. And then the Trumps of the world show up and turn it into a very vile cocktail. Uh, so yeah. so this whole tribal identity thing is a, a poison that works on a lot of dimensions. Trump's just the best at it, but it, it's even more than Trumpism. Um, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Stuart Stevens and Mike Murphy after these messages. And we're back uh, with Helen Highwater, Mike Murphy, Stuart Stevens, Republican strategist extraordinaire, now turned against Donald Trump. And I, I will say also turned towards each other. I, wa- I do want to say you guys are famous rivals. You are both probably the two top 
Republican strategists of your generation. You've won an incredible number of races in, at the gubernatorial level, at the senatorial level. You worked on, there's not a presidential election in my lifetime uh, as an adult that one of you was not working on, but you for a long time were not the best of friends. Uh, one of the many ways in which Donald Trump has served to bring us all together, united by a common enemy. Is that the deal here? Is that you guys have been able to put down your personal uh, rivalry because of you share, share a common foe? Is that the story here as to, because it's not the I case that I could so. have ever gotten the two of you guys to do a joint interview together, yeah, like say 10 years ago. Since 16, you know, that that is an old yeah. story. It's so colorful. It's a little bit overrated, but, <laughs> but Trump is a common purpose that makes everything else into trivia. But also, I mean, I think uh, certainly I can speak for myself. I think I kind of grew up a little. Um, I mean, life does imitate high school at all levels, but uh, at a certain point, that gets a little old. Um, you know, I've always found in the business that uh, it was easier to get along with Democratic consultants than Republicans because right. you weren't pitching true. against yeah. Democratic consultants. Um, you know, you were fighting them, but then afterwards, either won or lost. Um, and, you know, Mike and I are both very aggressive, very competitive, and we were both going after the same clients and in the same races. Um, it was kind of natural, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's over and I have tremendous admiration for the way Mike has spoken out and, uh, and, and, and vice versa. It. I just, I just want to sing harmony on this. So if you have, you know, syrupy music, now's the time to bring up the bet, but you do outgrow it. And after a while, you know, you just, you kind of think back and what the fuck was that all about? And you move on. I think the Trump thing is kind of like bolted it down and and as Stuart says and he's right you know you grow up a little and Trump is clarified you know you can't work in practical politics and not at the end of a career of several decades look in the mirror and you know I feel sorry for some of these Republicans who are you know hanging in there with Trump because a lot of them know better and they're going to have to look in that mirror and so oh you were part of that were you you know um and I was I was very impressed with how Stewart took a nanosecond to understand how bad Trump was. I think we kind of simultaneously could just see him coming. And yeah, we got to blow up our careers in the Republican Party, but I, I, I don't think Stewart has any regrets, and I sure don't. So there is an interesting question, like what happens next, right? Not just to the party. I mean, but part of the reason I asked about the two of you is because there's a very, very direct thing that you hear from liberals and, and Democrats and Democratic donors right now. You guys have both raised a shit ton of money at Arvat, in Mike's case, at the Lincoln Project, in Stewart's case. You guys have raised way more money than either one of you thought you were going to raise the cycle. You all, you kind of got into this business not thinking like, got into the the anti-Trump, let's try to take Trump out in, in 2020, thinking we'll raise a few million dollars. Hopefully we can get some work done here. And it turned out you both have raised, you know, gargantuan sums, your organizations, mainly because liberal donors have written checks, right? And everyone on the liberal side, you know, have loved your ads to one degree or another. They're liberal donor porn. They love the way you guys have ripped the bark off of Trump. But they all, and they all, I, I see it in my Twitter feed. I put up some Lincoln Project uh, video from when I was out there seeing your guys, Stuart, with the circus and like the things go crazy, hundreds of thousands of views and people, you know, saluting your patriotism. And, and, and again, a lot of people on the left, but there's again, there's like a little lurking thing, which is like, what are these guys going to do when this is over? I'm asking you both directly as as people, but also speaking for your class. And I'm not won't ask you to speak for them too much. But is the game here? We beat Donald Trump and then we go back to working for Republican clients, because that's what a lot of liberals expect uh, from you guys, that you'll just be mercenaries. Yeah, you go back to the look, Republican Party again. I mean, I, I can speak, you know, for those of us, I think, involved in the Lincoln Project. And that is uh, Trumpism isn't going away. I mean, look who's running in 2024. You know, I mean, Don Trump Jr. could very well be the nominee. Trump isn't going to disappear. And you have Nikki Haley who went out and spoke the truth about Donald Trump in 2016 when she endorsed Marco Rubio. And now she's up there praising Charlie Kirk. So, I mean, this is sickness that uh, is deep, deep, deep in this party. And it's a hate and it's an anger uh, and it's a racism. And it's an uh, illiberal, uh, pro-totalitarian, anti-conservative movement. And in the Lincoln Project, we're going to just, you know, take a breath and uh, start fighting again. Because this stuff hasn't changed. You don't beat, you beat Donald Trump. That's better than not beating Donald Trump. But you haven't accomplished the goal. So, um, 
we're, we're going to be up and at it, uh, you know, a couple of days after the election. Mike, what do you think? Our vet came out of a uh, of something Bill Crystal uh, started with Sarah Longwell uh, and, and others called Defending Democracy, uh, which started during the whole rule of law fight over Mueller and the investigation. So we will evolve. There is room. In fact, there's a necessity. And the Democrats always create an opening for a principled conservatism. The question is, will the Republican Party be the vessel for that or not? And so we're probably reformulate a little, but we're in a similar situation. We've, you know, the winning the presidency or at least pulling Trump out of it is step one for the immediate danger. But then there is a long fight ahead. And I'm sure we'll all be either collectively or individually involved in that. I think there's some of this in Lincoln and definitely in our vet is we have surprising Republican financial support. Um, yeah. And so, you know, there are, there are plenty of Republicans who are ready to be in that fight for conservatism that is relevant to the country and they can be proud of. Well, I think that's the question that Stuart, I know you, you have argued and seem to think that there is a market for a center right party in America and that the party that currently calls itself the Republican party um, is not that party. I, I guess I asked the question, is that really true? Donald Trump does not seem to to command the affection of a majority of Americans or even a majority of voting Americans. He has had the affection of and the support and loyal uh, backing of in the 90% range of the Republican Party throughout his presidency. And uh, as you said, if you thought about who the likely Republican nominees in 2024 are, um, you know, p- people like uh, Tom Cotton and people like uh, a Trumpified Nikki Haley and certainly Don- Donald Trump Jr., the legacy project uh, that he is, the attempt to, to build a, a dynasty in the Trump vein. You know, is there a market for a center right well, party? Here, is there really here. a civil war or is it now the party is now a Trumpist party? I think the party is a Trumpist party, um, which is not to say there's not a market for a center right. I really think, you know, we talk about three parties. I think there are three parties in America. There's two parties inside the Democratic Party. Call it a, a Biden party and a Sanders party. Um, and I think that the major policy issues facing America in the near and not so near future are going to be decided by that battle. Like take national health insurance. Are we really going to be the only country in 5, 10, 15 years that doesn't have national health insurance, like real national health insurance? No, we're not. And what that's going to be is going to be decided inside the Democratic Party. Republicans are just going to say no. That's what they've said now. Um, Look, I I don't know anybody in America who can, with credibility, define what being conservative is today in America. Um, If somebody held a gun to my head, I'd say, shoot, I had no idea. You listen to Elizabeth Warren. She has a coherent theory of government. You can argue with it. You can hate it. You can love it. But she can fight back and she'll do it very well. And it, it is logical. Until the Republican Party develops a coherent theory of government, it's just going to be about how much uh, you're slowing the rate of decline. Eventually, I think, I think we're in for a period of center-left government. Eventually, that'll probably go too far. And some morally centered, non-racially driven center-right movement hopefully will emerge. Um, it's a lot like the, the subprime mortgage crisis. It's easier to predict how it ends and how long it takes. and It'll probably take longer than we think. Yeah. But right now, I think you see a lot of people who are moderate Democrats who would have been Republicans 20 years ago. Connor Lamb. If Tom Ridge was still a big factor in this party, he'd probably be a Republican, but he's not. Um, and there's no room for him. So uh, it'll, it'll change, but it's going to take a long time. Mike, you, you guys, the, one of the things about the two of you uh, that you also share in common, in addition to Mitt Romney and in addition to uh, a lot of success in the business, is you both eventually migrated and found yourself in Los Angeles, California, where you have toiled and worked on Republican politics, my home state, right? Where I grew up, my dad from, from Wisconsin came out to California, was a, a, a Nixon Republican, was a Reagan Republican. You know, voted for for George Duke Majin when he was governor of the state, voted for Pete Wilson when he was governor of the state, and then did what a lot of Republicans did, looked at that the overreach of Republicans at the end of that Wilson term, and then never voted for Republican again, and found himself voting for Al Gore for president, found himself voting for, for Bill Clinton, and voting for, for Barack Obama. And my dad was, you know, conservative, if by any normal stretch of like what the moderate, Repub- right. moderate Republican was in post-World War II America. And my dad drifted away from that. And that is the story of a lot of Republicans in California. The Republican Party there now is a, is a rump party, 
And a lot of people think, and I may have heard Stuart say this at some point, but something I've heard from Gavin Newsom, and I've watched it in my father, um, that where the Republican Party seems to be headed right now, given the way it's behaving, and given the demographic uh, changes happening in the country, is that the future right now looks to me like the Republican Party nationally looks increasingly like the Republican Party in California, like the third choice and utterly irrelevant to how the state, how the country is governed. If it maintains the Trump party position, which is where I think it's looks like it's going to go, you can see the future of the Republican National Republican Party in California, true or false. Well, every it's the old cliche, everything that happens in American culture and many things happens first in California. A lot of the decline here is not just the kind of positioning of the party. It's also the demography of the state. Because we only yep. compete with Caucasians and, you know, the small minority slice of others. And the, the, the Caucasian vote won't get you arrested uh, anymore in the California of now in the future. Look, I think the fundamental question is, does one believe that Trumpism, this kind of toxic nationalist populism, is at the natural state of the party or a temporary one? A lot of people think it's the new natural state and they may be right. I am not sure. I think it may be temporary because parties are bad at committing suicide. Um, some do. They just fade away. And we could be on that path. We could wind up as the minority congressional party of the gated suburban community, which means we will have no power and the left will run wild. And we will either reform to be palatable and win elections or some other party will come fill that space, which is hard to do in our current system, which is kind of set up Coke Pepsi, but that'll melt away in the future. I mean, once blockchain technology is reliable, you'll be able to vote on your smartphone. All of a sudden, all the the 1901 structures we have now melt away. So the truth is, I don't know. My instinct is Trumpism is inherently more temporary, cult of personality, a moment in time, but it's sure been toxic to surrender the party. So I think the California outcome for the rest of the country or most of it is definitely possible, but I'm not at all sure it's certain we're, we're, the next four years are going to tell us a lot though it may take eight or ten years we may have to hit bottom and and totally get into nothingness and have american politics be the fulcrum between center democrat and bernie left uh, and just abandon the field um but my instinct is that won't happen but that's a minority opinion most people think trumpism's here to stay i, I think trump could be a sarah palin from a couple months where she had a grip on her own of the party that was quite powerful. Now you can pay her 500 bucks to open a shopping center. So losing <laughs> is not a vitamin for political parties, but we're seeing I've been wrong before. Stuart, what do you think about that? Um, I, I think the difference is race. I think once you say these things, you can't unsay them. So you could have made a case and I probably would have, if I hadn't been like seven, eight years old in 1964, that after the civil rights act passed that African-Americans and some sizable numbers would come back to the party. Because of mutual interest of cultural conservatism, faith, um, patriotism, entrepreneurship, it never happened. Um, And I think that's the same thing. What was the future of segregation in the South? It died. Trump is segregation. And uh, I knew a lot of people that were, and I grew up with the Mississippi, they were lovely people. They wouldn't have said a a racial slur for a million bucks, uh, but they were segregationists. Um, and the difference between the really bad segregationist and the, you know, good segregationist was, you know, significant in the sense that one was probably violent and one was not, but they were both segregationists. So history shows that once a major political party embraces hate as the Republican Party has, it's very difficult to get it back. Uh, usually it's a long road. It's often a bloody road. Hopefully this will just be a long road. Um, but look, find me a smart under 30 white kid who is entering or a non-white kid who's entering politics for the first time who really wants to be a republican yeah i mean you have to hunt them with dogs um (laughs) and and you know that's not a good sign here's my my last question for you which is just brings us back to this race that we're in right now and not the future of the republican party we just talked about you guys are both very confident that donald trump uh, is on a path to lose and that very little can change that the one thing that everyone who desperately, dearly hopes Donald Trump is going to lose and can see that shimmering on the on the horizon and the, the fear that they have that it might be a mirage that Trump figures out some way to steal this thing. Voter suppression on the front end, intimidation on Election Day, 
in the courts afterwards, somehow there's going to be some way that Trump is going to be able to, with his friend Bill Barr, is going to be able to maintain his his grip on power. We've seen various scenarios in the Atlantic about the mm-hmm. electoral college scenario, et cetera, et cetera. How seriously do you take that set of concerns? Uh, not particularly seriously. I know they're very in vogue now, but I think he's going to get beat. And I think if he acts like a madman afterward, I think for the first and only time, the 25th Amendment move could be real. Because you got a bunch of cabinet people who want to have reputations again and go get on corporate boards and do stuff. And I think the power of Fulcrum would change. And they, if he was really a madman trying to tear down institutions afterward, that's where they might bounce them out. But I, I am not, I, I'm worried about minor problems. I am not worried about the seven days in May kind of scenario that are, I, I would tell my liberal friends to stop worrying about that and turn out the fucking vote. I have a different view, Mike. I, I think that Trump is not going to lose an election that he hasn't done everything he can to delegitimize. So here's a scenario for you. It's November 1st. Uh, Trump is losing. Uh, there's reports of voter regularity in, uh, say, Dade County. There usually are. Um, he calls up uh, Chad Wolf at DHS and says, send in whoever those guys are in camouflage to seize the boxes in the Dade County Courthouse. So who's going to stop him? Dade County security guards? I don't think so. These guys are going to show up with automatic weapons. So they get the boxes. So the courts go crazy, probably within the hour, in order and returned. But what happens if some of those boxes have been opened? You have a whole chain of custody issue. So then how do you have an election? How do you have an election in Florida without Dade County? How do you have an election in America without Florida? And, you know, probably that would get worked out. Um, that's an, ele- but that's an election day scenario. You're talking about November 3rd? No, no I say November 1st. November 1st, a little before. A couple of days before. Yeah. Look, uh, Trump has always benefited from the inability to imagine Donald yes. Trump. We couldn't imagine him winning the Republican primary. Couldn't imagine him winning. And, you know, Trump is not a normal person. And those of us who are normal, and most of us are, we always think that someone who's acting abnormally will revert to normalcy. We have a whole language to it. Uh, they'll come to their senses. Um, Trump uh, has tested the Republican Party. It's just what he does. And he has found that the Republican Party uh, is yet to find a line at which they will rise out of any principle to defend. Right. Doesn't matter if it's if it's white supremacy, whatever. They'll they'll stand there. Uh I think Bill Barr is uh more he's found as Roy Cohn. Um so who's gonna stop him? That's the question. And you know, one of the things we've learned is that a lot of our democracy is based on norms, which is civil society. Why do you stop at red lights at midnight when there's no cops around? Because it's a civil society. Uh Trump doesn't stop. And he's a powerful figure. He happens to be president of the United States. And he has filled the government with a bunch of people who have never been uh, formally appointed. He's acting this, acting that. They're largely a group of people who think that they can rise in the Trump organization by proving that they'll do anything to please Donald Trump. And that's a nightmare scenario. Yeah. Um, So I think that uh, the only way to avoid this is... uh, to be heading into an election that is so overwhelmingly uh, destructive to the Republican Party that the Republican Party might feel moved to try to do something to try to pretend that it cares about democracy. Right. But I think the period between now and the election are the most dangerous periods in American democracy since the Civil War. And that's because of Donald Trump and the Republican Party that won't stand up to Donald Trump. The period Trump. between now and Election Day. Yes. Not, not the period yes. after Election Day until the inauguration. No, I think Trump is going to be crushed on election right. day and that's that's going to make it a lot harder look if it's 2000 yeah. there's going to be blood in the streets literally um, literally yes yeah of course i mean this is when trump calls out the proud boys it's, it's not a, a rhetorical yeah. call out yeah um you know when the governor of michigan has to ban people carrying automatic weapons at polling sites yeah. i mean that's 1964 mississippi and a lot of people died in 1964 mississippi trying to vote the only way to avoid that scenario is completely to crush Donald Trump. And if I was running the Democratic Party, I would be going around saying, we are going to crush this little man. This is our moment. There are more of us than him. Walk with competence. Take it. Seize it. Crush him. It is ours now. I wouldn't be in all this timidity. We can't be overconfident. We can't be this. I'd be out there and just saying, you know, he is ours. We are going to take him. Right. And I would do it. And I think that's how uh, we're going to avoid a constitutional national crisis. I mean, the thing that I worry about in this context is that, to your point, and I'm not sure exactly when the right time to worry about it is, but whether it's between now and Election Day or in a scenario where the race is close, 
and there's you know still some ballots haven't been counted in pennsylvania and you know that's a nightmare scenario i just worry that in all those instances what we rely on for the nightmare not to take hold is the institutional republican party to stand up to trump and there is almost no examples of that over the course of the last four years when it won't happen it won't happen you know the republican party it's not really a political party now it's a cartel it exists to beat democrats and uh, once you're in that mentality of course you'll do anything to beat Democrats. I mean, nobody says to OPEC, like, well, do you really think this is a morally right decision to make? Right. You know, you're in the business of selling oil. You don't have to narco cartel. Well, it's just like really good for society. You know, you sell dope. And that's what the Republican Party is. It's a cartel. Um, and no, they're not going to stand up. They're going to go along with this. They're afraid of their base. The, these are not brave people. Okay. I mean, it's not particularly interesting or novel or new. We should, we should just remember how unusual courage is. Stuart Stevens, Mike Murphy, um, it is awesome to have you here and to be able to shoot this particular brand of shit with you. And I have to say that Mike is more optimistic about where this is all going. I think, I think and I fear that Stuart may be more clear-eyed ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening to hell and high water hell and high water is a podcast from the recount another big thanks to mike murphy and Stuart stevens for being here and being here together uh, for this episode of hell and high water if you like this episode please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the apple podcast app it helps people find out what we're doing here i'm your host and the executive editor of the recount john heilman Aliyah jackson and d scott carroll engineered this podcast justin chermel and diana roten handled research for it sari soffer is our producer and christian fidel castro russell is our executive producer <laughs>